I feel very tired. I can't believe it's Tuesday. At least you don't have to edit this website. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined by Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Uh, we wanted to start by talking about what's what's in the news. This this horrific mass shooting in, in Las Vegas that's left over 50 dead, 500 injured, and of course has reignited the, the debate around guns and, and gun legislation in, in the United States, but, but not reignited it in a way that anyone thinks anything would actually happen. It's just kind of a, a, a lot of talk. And and so I think we want to try to find, I don't know, a, a, a weedsier angle, you know, get, so get wanna, something that's a little more about somewhere where they actually had a horrific mass shooting, did something about the horrific mass shooting, and, and it actually worked. The, the American conversation in the aftermath of these events is predictable and it's ineffective. And it's also a bit of kabuki theater. Um, what you tend to have is Democrats saying, hey, listen, this keeps happening. We should do something about it. And then as a way of showing that Republicans are completely and utterly unreasonable on this issue, which is true, they propose policies that would not actually do all that much about the underlying problem, but Republicans still say no to even those policies. So you have this thing where nothing passes, but also there isn't really an effort to build support for the kinds of quite aggressive solutions that you would need, I think, to really make a dent in this problem. It's worth saying as a a beginning point here, America has so much gun violence, and it's very important to say that gun violence includes both homicides and suicides, as unbelievable and awful and unique as America's gun homicide problem is. It's gun suicide problem is actually even worse. Uh, most gun deaths in America are, are from suicides, and these are in many ways even more amenable to gun control. But, but America's problems here have a lot to do with the fact that we just have more guns than anybody else does. America has 4.4% roughly of the world's population, and we have about half, half of the world's civilian-owned guns. So that is a fucking crazy statistic. But we're not the only country that has had a lot of guns, and we're also not the only country that's had mass shootings. In 1996, April 1996, in Australia, a 28-year-old man named Martin Bryant walked into a cafe in Port Arthur, which is a tourist town. He opened fire with a semi-automatic, and he killed 35 people, and he wounded another 28. So this was a terrible mass shooting, 35 dead, 28 wounded. Not as many people as in Vegas, but also remember Australia is a smaller country. Now, I want to take a moment here because what happened next, people have, I think if you've been on the internet and been in the the internet content world for a bit, you've probably heard it described in in both a very funny and actually very apt little riff by the the comedian Jim Jeffries. In Australia, we have the biggest massacre on earth. The Australian government went, that's it. No more guns. And we all went, and we all went, yeah, right then, that seems fair enough. Now, in America, you have the Sandy Hook massacre where little tiny children died and your government went, maybe we'll get rid of the big guns? (laughs) And 50% of you went, fuck you, don't take my guns! So, So what Jeffries is saying here is actually true. Australia decided that they were going to make a lot of these kinds of guns illegal. 
but just making them illegal wouldn't be enough. They had all of these guns that were actually out there among the population. People had them. So if you just made them illegal, you weren't doing anything about the existing gun problem. So what they decided to do was they would actually do a massive buyback program. They would pay the gun owners a fair price. Um, it would be set by a national committee using market value as a benchmark. And here I'm reading from a terrific article our colleague Zach Beecham did on this on this effort. So they would pay market value uh, to compensate gun owners for the loss of their property. Uh, they would also give a legal amnesty to anyone who wanted to turn in illegally owned guns, though, though they wouldn't get any money for their illegally owned guns. So this buyback, it bought back 650,000 guns. That's a lot of guns. Now, that's not all the guns that were in Australia. According to, to one estimate, it was only about 20% of the privately owned guns in Australia. But then after that, also, you couldn't buy these guns. So as time went on, you had fewer and fewer guns uh, on the market and in people's homes. Obviously, people have guns at homes, but over time they break or they're not taken care of or, or they're lost or whatever it might be. So then the question is, did this work? And the answer is it really did work. In 2011, Harvard's David Hemingway and Mary Vriniatis, um, I hope I'm saying that name right, but I do not have much confidence in it. They, they looked at the research on uh, the aftermath of the gun buyback program, and their conclusion was it was, quote, incredibly successful in terms of lives saved. What they found is a huge decline in both suicide and homicide rates. Um, the average firearm suicide rate in Australia in the seven years after the bill declined by 57%, 57% compared with the seven years prior. The average firearm homicide rate went down by about 42%. Uh, and, and these numbers are actually really amazing. Per 100,000 people, because uh, you want to think about, you know, Australia's obviously a, a smaller country than we are. Per 100,000 people, buying back 3,500 guns correlated with a 74% drop in firearm suicides, which was very statistically significant. You know, it was robust to analysis. 74%. And non-gun suicides did not increase to make up the decline. I, I want to hold on that point for one second because it is he's a highly spectacular, and I use that word in its sort of literal definition, not with any positive connotation, obviously. It is these, these huge mass shootings that command public attention, that focus uh, us on our gun problem. Uh, Las Vegas, Sandy Hook, Dylan Roof. I mean, we have these terrible events that that overwhelm the national consciousness, at least for a minute, even if nothing tends to happen in their aftermath. But if you look at gun deaths, they're not coming primarily from multi-dozen person mass shootings. They're coming you know, from, from homicides, but even more, again, from suicides. And one thing about suicide that, that we know from a lot of research is suicide is an impulsive act. Uh, people who choose to commit suicide, if they are stopped for three or four days, that might just get rid of the their, their suicidal ideation um, entirely. It doesn't for everybody, of course, but for many people, just getting them over that hump, they're not going to immediately try again, or they're not going to immediately just delay their effort. And the other thing is whether or not you are successful at a suicide is very dependent on what uh, effort you use, uh, what, what kind of means you use. People who try to use pills or try to hang themselves have a much, 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 much lower success rate than people use guns because guns are designed and are effective at killing human beings. So when you don't have guns, both it can be harder to commit suicide, which means that you often have more of an opportunity to get people over that hump and get them help. And often people who do try to take pills or something, they just end up getting their stomach pumped. They can give them treatment too. So one piece of the whole gun discussion that I think often gets undernoticed here is one way in which taking a lot of these guns off the streets would be helpful is not just in preventing these kinds of mass shootings, but in preventing everyday suicides, which are in America, very, very gun-related and thus very successful. So that's, I think, the the Australian the, the basis for for this point about Australia. 
they had a pretty radical gun problem. They implemented a pretty radical gun solution, and they had pretty significant results. In America, we have an even worse gun problem. We are not talking about solutions of anything near the scale. And so we are getting terrible, terrible results with these continuous deaths, continuous mass shootings, continuous suicide problem. And it is just always we're saying that this is a choice. It is a policy choice we make. Every day we every day we choose to continue on in this world is a day we are choosing this world. We we know that there are ways to to choose a different pathway. And we are just as a country deciding not to take them. And I want to point out the Australia program, I think it's even more radical and big than you described. So the buyback, it's it's one big part of it, but it's actually a suite of gun policy changes that happen. So the things that happen, um, this is a really helpful article from The Atlantic from um, gosh, I don't have his what? name. The Atlantic. What? We sometimes read other publications what? here at Vox. I know. It's going to break Ezra's heart. Um, but the policies involved in this 96 like suite of gun reforms was a ban on automatic and semi-automatic firearms, new licensing requirements, a national firearms registry, a 28-day waiting period for gun purchases, and also the buyback and, dis- and destruction of 600,000 civilian-owned firearms. So this is not just like a big buyback, it's actually even bigger and more radical than that. It's bundling up a lot of policies we've seen do decently well on their own um, into one big gun reform. And it it costs money. The package cost half a billion dollars. It was funded by raising taxes, which seems like something kind of just incredible. It feels absurd to imagine in the U.S. a proposal to raise taxes to fund this suite of policies just seems like something you wouldn't even start with here in the U.S. because it it costs money to buy people's guns back. But I think one of the things that's interesting about gun policy compared to some other areas of domestic policy, a lot of times we talk about white papers on this show where you're talking about hard problems, hard problems where you can't really figure out the solution. You're trying to figure out how to make people healthier. But it turns out health insurance isn't great at that. Um, you know, Increasing access to fruits and vegetables doesn't have a great track record. These are hard policy problems to, to make people healthier, to solve those sort of issues. Gun policy does not strike me as, um, as a problem like that. There is decent evidence that we actually know what works, and, and even things smaller than the Australia buyback can work. There's another great Vox.com article from Zach Beachamp where he looked at this paper that came out a few years ago. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the journal, but we'll put in show notes a link to it, where they basically did an international review of um, gun reform laws. They looked at Australia, looked at Japan, looked at a number of other countries. They even looked at some states here in the U.S. and what happens when states implement individual level reforms. And they generally find it it works. When the things you think will reduce gun and violence actually do reduce gun violence. It's not like this space where we're searching for what is the right policy solution to lead to the outcome. It's actually a space where we have a decent sense that the policy works from all these different international examples over the past few decades. But like Ezra said, there's not much of an interest in putting those into action on a on a national level in the US. But so you know, this is an issue on which I have, I guess, some some right wing sympathies because it always it strikes me for one thing, right, that there's this like total bad faith game where like a mass shooting comes and then people jump to, well, if America completely banned all guns, then we would have a huge reduction in suicides. So isn't it crazy that these NRA fanatics are opposing our, like, totally irrelevant large 
ammunition holster type thing, right? <laughs> and then you have Sarah being like, oh, this is like an easy problem. It's not a hard problem like public health. But like if we made sugar illegal, right? Like that would have, I think, a pretty clear benefits on public health. If we doubled alcohol taxes, if we doubled gasoline taxes, like there are lots and lots of things where we know there's like everyday vices that people enjoy and that if we made them illegal or punitively expensive, we could have drastically better public health outcomes. And we don't, I mean, sometimes we advocate for them, sometimes we don't, but we don't have as like a bunch of people sitting around being like, I don't understand. Why don't we just make all alcohol and sugar illegal? legal. Like, of course you understand why we don't do those things. It's because people like them. And there's, like, a, a, a trade-off that exists there. And I also, like, I, I grew up in Manhattan. I went to Harvard. I live in Washington, D.C. I'm very much inside the liberal bubble. I completely sympathize with the idea that gun ownership as a cultural value, in fact, carries no value, and we should put zero weight on people's interests in, like, frontier society and the culture of gun ownership. Uh, but I also, uh, you know, I'm, I'm married to a to a Texan, and my father in law has has some guns locked up in his closet. And like, I I understand the viewpoint that like this this is valuable to some people, and that to just like sort of take these outlier events, then propose policy solutions that are not closely related to those events, and where the benefits mostly relate actually not to criminals but to suicides. Like you can see why that rubs people the wrong way, just as, like, in the 20s, right, prohibition was understood by Jews and Catholics as, like, a Protestant assault on their culture, even though, like, the public health problems with alcohol consumption are very, very real. Like, the reality of the politics is that it was this kind of culture war politics that was free-floating for, for many actual issues. But so I think there, are, I think there's a lot to be said for that, but I actually think there's a lot of ways in which you're giving the, you're missing actually where I think those analogies are actually true. That there's a lot that is similar about the way we talk about guns and public health and guns and other other issues like that. So one thing here is that even when we do talk about big gun buyback programs, nobody is saying, let's take away every gun everybody has. I actually don't know anybody who thinks you shouldn't be able to have normal hunting guns. I know a lot of people think you should be able to have AR-15s. I don't think you should be able to have AR-15s. I don't think you should be able to have handguns. Um, doesn't mean you can't have guns, doesn't mean you can't hunt, but pretty similarly, when we're looking at substances in the public health um, arena, there are places where we say, okay, the trade-off of being able to have sugar is worthwhile, or the trade-off of being able to have alcohol is worthwhile, although we decide not if you're a kid and not if you want to drive and not if it's, you know, in certain concentrations and, and there, there are other extenuating circumstances there. But the trade-off of having heroin become completely legal for anybody who wants it with no waiting period and no registry at all is not worth it. We're not going to let people do that. The, um, you know, letting large pharmaceutical manufacturers weaponize um, hyper-addictive drugs uh, that you can then buy over the counter, you know, sometimes it happens. I think a lot of us wish we could go back and change the way opioids were done, even though even they were more tightly regulated than that. But we do make distinctions. We do make decisions. And yes, it's true that these big events focus attention. But it's not like these are new opinions that occur in the aftermath of big events. I mean, everything in politics is a is a process of agenda setting, of people moving from one thing to another, of trying to get people to pay attention to something they think. You know, the reason I think it's important to talk about suicides is that's a huge fucking problem. Um, 
And if you are going to address the gun problem, that's part of what you should address. I think it's a shame that the way we ordinarily rank what we pay attention to in politics has so much to do with high-level media events um, and things that the, the media will cover, but it kind of is what it is. It doesn't make the underlying problem less bad. I, I don't I don't really think it's a valid objection to somebody saying, hey, look, now that we're talking about guns, like let's, let's do something about our terrible suicide problem in this country to say, oh, well, you're just saying that because there's a mass shooting, so now people are willing to talk about guns like well yes but like every week on the weeds we decided to do things based on what's in the news so you take you take the opportunities you can get i think that there is or would be a lot of ways to have um gun equilibriums in this country that allowed for people to have firearms that didn't allow for continuous race and how powerful and how many people those firearms could kill now there are folks who don't like that. And part of what people enjoy with guns is like having better and better guns. And they enjoy things that are powerful and they enjoy, you know, using semi-automatics at the range. And I'm not taking that away from anybody, but by the same token, we've already said there are certain kinds of guns, like automatic guns. You can't have a rocket launcher. You can't have a tank. We have to choose where we put our lines. And I, I do think it is one of the weird things about this discussion that people seem to pretend it's something we only do or only want to do in guns, but it's not. We do it everywhere else. And my God, if we treated other things in, in the country the way we treat guns, it's much easier to get powerful firearms for a lot of people than it is to get alcohol. I can't get an anti-nausea medication, Zofran, as easily as I can go into a Walmart and get a semi-automatic. So I just don't think, I don't just don't buy it that there's some kind of like incredible stringency being put on this issue. No, I mean, it's it's not the stringency that's, I mean, to be clear, look, I would totally make guns illegal. All guns, all totally illegal. I don't think people should be allowed to hunt. And I bet you don't think people should be allowed to hunt. <laughs> All that being said, right, like, it's when you read Chris Murphy's statement in the wake of Las Vegas, he is not saying it is time for us to address America's elevated rate of suicides relative to other OECD countries, right? There is something going on. If you are a person who is in But Murphy's also not proposing a gun buyback. No, no, no. I mean, I I understand that, right? But I mean, it's like, I, I think it's like... Sometimes good in life to try to to sympathize with with other people's viewpoint, and like there is something fishy happening with liberals and gun discourse. It seems to me, right? Like these spectacular mass shootings occur, and then like outcome the sort of waves of outpouring and outrage, and there is a very poor mismatch between like the rhetoric that's being used, the charts about America's gun death rates, the policies that are actually being proposed. What do you? Think would be a fair response to continuous mass shootings like like what is what is like the non-fishy version of respond trying to respond to this like, problem I, I don't know exactly right like someone would have to try to come up with a proposal that was aimed at addressing mass sh- that that gathered its weight from the idea that this is going to substantially reduce mass shootings not it's going to substantially but reduce- isn't the focus like a lot of automatic weapons like exactly that kind of policy? I mean, maybe it is, right? But, like, that's what I... Then I I turn to Vox.com, which I think is an excellent website, and it gives a lot of things. And what I read a lot on Vox.com is, like, the real benefits of this is going to be, like, suicide reduction. If it was up to me, I mean, if I could somehow control everybody, what I would say is that, like, we as a country have decided that we actually don't want to address mass shootings. For example, in the United States, we have a hugely elevated rate of car fatalities compared to other countries. 
And that's like a fact. And I can write cranky website articles about it. But we don't just like every day be like, oh, my God, all these car deaths in America, right? It's like deeply ingrained. We enjoy our vehicles. We enjoy our suburban growth model. And we just kind of pass it by, right? And I feel like we've like made a similar choice on guns. And if it were me, I would like to like not have these like days long media, like let's all make a big deal about guns because, like, we've decided not to, that this is, like, the cost of doing business that in America. that seems like a, a place in which the we is doing work it shouldn't do. There isn't a we who've decided not to. I mean, one of the things people bring up a lot about this, this debate, and I'm not sure actually how relevant it is, but public opinion on what gun laws should look like is somewhat different than the equilibrium we've actually reached. So it's not, let's go to gun buyback, but it is like, okay, background checks, waiting periods. I mean, a lot of stuff is very popular. There, I mean, that's clearly unsettled. Now, like, I actually would really like it if there were opportunities that were provided where we could get people to pay more attention to traffic deaths. Right. I think that's like an interesting topic. Like we have published a lot of your writing on um, zoning and, you know, yeah, ways in which like death. the problems of, of, of suburbs and sprawl. But I don't know. I think there's something very weird in the argument you're making about how in the aftermath of spectacular focusing events, people should only have an incredibly limited response that does not take into account the underlying problems related to the cause of the event. I mean, it's just like it's just like not it's like saying um, it's just not how we address problem. And I think also like Australia like actually speaks to a situation yeah. like this where you did have that focusing event with the mass shooting. You had this big gun control package and then you do see you know you see pushback from rural areas where you have more gun ownership but you do see the dividends being paid in in fewer shootings and fewer suicides. Like it seems like it is I think I, I guess you're asking like is this the right way for people who support gun control to take a moment like Las Vegas and make some sort of gains. Um, I, well, I, I mean, they're not making yeah. any gains. I mean, for one thing, right, this is, as a political strategy, this is a cataclysmic failure, right, that has only moved gun laws in the opposite direction, right? Like, over the past 15, 20 years, right, like, gu- gun laws have become laxer, not more stringent. Yeah, but... but you I guess know, the question is, like, what's the alternative? Yeah. <laughs> Like, like Matt's like, let's all stay quiet after all these people die. I, I just don't know that. Well, I'm not saying stay quiet, but it's like, <laughs> well, I, I, like what, like what are people trying to do? I, I just like, I, I'm baffled. But like in the mid aughts, I feel like there was like a good sort of like come to Jesus moment among Democrats who were like, why don't we stop losing elections over our unpopular and ineffectual gun control stance? And then motivated by like Facebook shares, it's been like, no, what we need to do is not make any legislative progress on this, but lose more elections over it. And, like, it it just, it seems baffling to me. I mean, I know everybody is frustrated about this. Like, now, in the wake of mass shootings, all I read are not even people, like, advocating for gun control measures, but just, like, voicing frustration with the fact that the measures are not passing. And I, too, am frustrated. But it's like, like like, what are we trying to do here? These days, uh, you know, it's it's an on-demand world. It's an on-demand economy. And Stamps.com is about bringing that on-demand philosophy to the world of postage. Uh, so you don't need to go to the post office. You don't need to sort of wait for when are they open. You can get postage whenever you want online with Stamps.com. Uh, anything you could do at a post office, you can do from your desk with your computer. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package in your own computer, your own printer, and it never closes. So, you know, if you need it on Sunday, if you need it at 7 p.m., if you need it early in 
in the morning. Stamps.com is always open. That's really convenient. You know, the rhythms of your life just don't necessarily line up with, with the rhythms of, of postal service openings, and, and it's incredibly convenient. Uh, so right now, if you use our promo code WEEDS, you get a special offer. It's a four-week trial that includes postage and a digital scale. So how do you get it? You go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, you click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, type in WEEDS. That's Stamps.com, enter WEEDS, Stamps.com, never wait in line at the post office again. I just, I, I'm not sure that it makes sense to me as a general principle, and I don't actually believe it is your general principle, that the fact that certain things are just a little bit outside the current political consensus. I mean, like, for instance, gun measures almost did pass in the wake of Sandy Hook. I mean, they failed, but you're talking about failure of a couple of votes. Right, um, but like those I measures were not... But they were significant. I mean, they would have helped. Right, like, like you to, could make this, well, you can make this sure argument that. that's, that's, about any policy fight. Like, I think there's a lot of policy fights where you see you, like, push at it again and you fail and you push at it again and you fail and then... There is a moment that's somewhat unpredictable that it actually. But like the the worked. last thing that almost came through, right? Because I mean, was this like this like no fly no gun bill, right? Where Democrats were were pushing legislation that was going to get people who weren't on the. Yeah, the, I agree. That's small bore, but but, it, but it's not just that it's but it's, but it, but it's not it's like not that. just that it's small bore, right? I mean, what what I understood for, from experts on that was that like that was actually bad. Right. Like it would not have addressed the gun measure that it was going to increase the scope of this sort of lawless, discriminatorily applied uh, measure. But there was like enormous sort of right, push we, behind we, it. Right. But we wrote about how that was bad. We did. This is how I, I get all my information right, about guns. But so but right, now, right, now, right now we are talking about things that we think would be good. <laughs> I mean, look, like we're not. I'm not going to convince you on this, but I just, I think that it is worth rethinking the underlying principle. Like maybe, maybe it is the view that people should just talk about only things that like might happen next week, or might happen in two years, right? Or might be political, or might be politically popular. I don't actually try to build support. I will be interested to see. Right, Nevada has very lax gun laws for an American state. Nevada is also not a super conservative state. Right. I mean, we've talked about our, our friendly sprinkle care. Uh, they've got uh, one Democratic senator, a, a vulnerable Republican senator. Um, they have a moderate Republican governor, a Democratic state legislature. I, I will be really interested to see one year from now or two years from now when when state elections are being held there, when Democrats are trying to elect a governor, trying to elect an attorney general. Are those candidates going to talk about the gun issue as, you know, part of their platform, something that they want to do? And are they going to talk about it as a day-to-day, this is going to improve public health outcomes in Nevada kind of way? And that, to me, is the kind of thing that would um, potentially, like, work, potentially build support over time to get people to think about widespread gun possession as a sort of constant public health threat to the United States that is leading to more Nevadans committing suicide, just somewhat more street crime that is existing, and that therefore, as people like start to think about the threat environment, this could, this could actually sort of go and happen. I'm not sure if that would work, but to me, that kind of thing, right, like this Weber, slow boring of hard boards, like that's how you make progress on this. And I find, like, liberals' engagement on this issue to be incredibly inconsistent, like, weirdly fickle, a little bit, like, tantrum-throwy, and in a way that is actually distinct from other kinds of things that we talk about. And it's 
it hasn't been working over time. Maybe it will change. I mean, I agree that Vox.com's gun articles are very informative, and like, I hope people will will read them and and understand. But I just, to me, like that, the discourse that we see in the wake of these things is not productive. It's not helping. It's not changing people's minds. It's not building support for anything. Yeah, I just I just don't think I agree in a broad way. I, I don't I want to make one point on suicides because I think that's a place where where this gets this conversation has a little bit of its crux. Um and and what I think that's doing. So when I think about the way we run coverage on some of these things, and not just guns, but a lot of things, um, the our approach, right, the sort of explanatory journalism approach is to say, okay, the news has focused attention on a point of on a point of curiosity, a point of urgency, a brand new story. How can we fill in the rest of the picture? That's where we can give you the context so that the news makes more sense. Rather than just saying what happened right here, we can try to give you the information to understand the the, the broader space in which it is happening, the, the way this puzzle piece fits into the broader puzzle. The reason I think it's important to talk about suicides is that I think that is a place where if people had a little bit more focus on it and did understand how much a part of the gun issue and the gun problem that is, there are problems that could be specifically oriented there that that would be valuable. Um, Now, gun buyback, we started this with Australia and with a much more radical approach. It's an approach that, you know, particularly on these kinds of weaponry, I I would support, but nobody thinks it is anywhere close to happening here. And also to your point, Matt, it's not something that actually any Democratic politicians ever um, uh, propose here. But I do think that it would be good to give people the sense that, hey, there are like one reason waiting periods are actually a pretty interesting proposal is, you know, there might be some mass shootings that they would have stopped or or, or they would deal with, but they're really quite effective potentially for suicides. And so, yes, part of it is when there is an opportunity to try to talk through this stuff to say, hey, look, here are dimensions of the problem. Here is the broader context of the problem. Here are different solutions that might help in different ways. And, you know, one day there may or may not be, but I expect there will be an opportunity to act on some of this. And then having a pretty good understanding of the dimensions of the problem will be important. Um, to me, like, that's what the media should be doing and and what we try to do on a lot of issues, not just guns, right? You've written explainers here, Sarah's written explainers here, we've all done that. And a lot of it is trying to say, okay, people are focused on this thing, here is what else matters in the space. So you can kind of get a fuller picture. And I think that's a I think that's a positive thing to do. And I think that you do not, you cannot understand America's unusual gun deaths without breaking it down into homicide, homicides and suicides. And you know, I think you can't understand why there are policies that really would be effective um, without understanding the, the the suicide piece of it. Yeah, I think it brings a little bit of policy nuance to what it is you're trying to do with the understanding that these mass shootings end up being focusing moments. We just have a lot less focusing moments on gun suicides. They're like mm-hmm. the car crashes. They just happen quietly, um, you know, unless it is... I mean, I guess if it was someone famous committing a gun suicide, but I can't even, I can't even rem- like remember... The last time, like that, was drawn up as an issue. It is such a quiet issue that I do understand the impulse to wrap it into a moment when there is focus, and I think there is decent international evidence that that you know has not worked as a political strategy, but isn't um, isn't necessarily something that is going to stop legislation like this if there is enough political will behind it. Speaking right, of political, let's take will. a break. Talk about the hot button question of tax reform. <laughs> 
You're busy, I'm busy, we're all busy, everybody is busy these days, and yet everyone has little bits of free time. And you know, in 15 minutes, you could be just like wasting time on Facebook or Twitter or something like that. But instead, why not get a summary of the main points of a great book that you've been meaning to read by listening to the key insights in just 15 minutes? Uh, friends and colleagues are probably always mentioning books. You know, you hear buzz about these things, but you don't always have the time to get to them. And that's where Blinkist comes in with the solution. They have over 2,000 of the best-selling nonfiction books transformed into power packs that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. Uh, you know, anyone who's listening to this podcast probably loves the idea of learning on the go. This is a great way to take that into the realm of nonfiction books. Uh, so w- with Blinkist, you can feast your mind on key ideas from some of the top best-selling books. Uh, they got Why Nations Fail, The Myth of a Strong Leader, uh, Two Nations Indivisible. So it's a lot of great stuff out there, and you can get the essential ideas in just 15 minutes or less. Uh, so, so here's a special offer we have for you. Go to Blinkist.com weeds right now. You can start a free trial or get three months off a yearly plan. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com weeds to start a free trial or get three months off a yearly plan. Blinkist.com weeds. Okay, so Republicans um, late last week came out with a framework for tax reform about what they've like developed all kinds of jargon around this. So they they created this construct that there is a big six who was working on tax reform, which is like House Republican leadership, Senate Republican leadership, two guys from the administration. And they spent months working on a plan that was supposed to fill out the details of tax reform relative to what Republicans had previously proposed. And I would say they basically didn't do any of that. And they came out with this new, somewhat ambiguous framework that's largely the same as ambiguous frameworks that they had before. But with healthcare now off the table, people are sort of more focused on it. Um, So, you know, we can talk about what it is. Um, But this is like really telling. Centerpiece, instead of seven tax brackets, there's going to be three. There's going to be 12, so the lowest one is higher. There's going to be 35, so the highest one is lower. 25 in the middle. And they don't say where the brackets are going to start. And also there might be four. Right. and That's they, the other <laughs> thing I think is really funny well, about wait, this. I, I, Whenever I, you like raise them, just like, well, we might add a fourth. I, I want to come to And the, the fourth one would be high, higher or it could be anywhere. Yeah, well, well, we'll come to Who it. Knows? So, so <laughs> the standard deduction is going to be uh, doubled, basically. Uh, the child tax credit will be higher by an unspecified amount. The personal exemption is going to be eliminated. Uh, mortgage interest and charitable tax deductions will remain, but other tax deductions will go away. Corporate income tax— Including, very importantly, the state and local tax that, deduction. That's the biggest one. Corporate income tax is going to be lowered from 35% to 20%. That's going to be paid for by unspecified uh, reductions in corporate tax breaks. Um, but they're going to create a giant new corporate tax loophole, so all foreign profits will be exempt from taxation, except there's another asterisk here where maybe that won't happen because there'll be a new international corporate tax rate. There's also going to be a bigger loophole because there's going to be, uh, instead of depreciating over a multi-year time frame, you're going to be able to do it immediately. Um, pass-through companies, right? So if you have a business with only a small number of owners, they call For these— For instance, you name it after yourself. It's like a family business. Yes. And yeah. does real estate in Manhattan, exactly. but also brand stuff. Um, that's going to just get a special 25% tax rate, which is a, a big tax cut. Uh, the estate tax is going away. The alternative minimum tax is going away. So, 
in a sense, I mean, they've specified a bunch of tax cuts, right? I mean, the, the, the things that are really clear here are the estate tax, which right now, if you stand to inherit uh, a multi-million dollar fortune, it's pretty high, right? I mean, if you're normal, it doesn't exist. Uh, the estate tax is a little bit weird because the estate tax rate is really high, but almost everyone is exempt from it. What is, Wait, what is the exemption is level at this point? It's like $5 million, yeah. but you pay a 40% rate on it, which I, I think is weird policy, but at any rate, it is where we are. So it's like a big tax cut if you are Ivanka Trump. Um, corporations, right? Going from right now, there's like a lot of problems with collecting taxes on American companies' foreign profits. You hear all these like tax shenanigans, blah, blah, blah. So the Republican solution to that is to just not collect those taxes. So it's a really big tax cut if you're like Facebook or you're Apple. Um, Eliminating the AMT, you know, is kind of a big deal. The pass-through thing is a huge deal. Right now, if you're Donald Trump, you pay 39.6% marginal tax rate. He's going to cut his own taxes to 25%. All the rest of this is, like, incredibly murky, if you ask me. The Tax Policy Center did a score of this, which showed that um, it's, like, a huge tax cut for the 1%. Let me talk on the score real quick. I think there are three numbers in the score that are just worth knowing here. So for the top 1%, on average, they get a $130,000 tax cut. Someone in the middle class, the middle cliff. (laughs) Hi. Someone in the middle class gets, on average, a $660 tax cut, if I'm remembering this correctly. And the whole thing blows a $2.5 trillion uh, hole in the deficit. What's important to know here is that the Trump administration has promised that this will be deficit neutral and also um, as progressive as the current code. So in theory, if they are defining any of those words the way we normally define them, which they may well not, but if they're defining them the way we normally define them, they somehow have to come up with $2.5 trillion in offsets and also a set of policies that will lead to a $130,000 tax cut becoming something much, 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 much smaller than that. So Republicans will come in and say, oh, well, that that uh, tax policy-centered analysis, we've not given the details, like they're making assumptions. But number one, when they give the details, it could get worse. Some of these assumptions are actually made favorably to the administration. And two, like, fair enough. But then it just shows, like, how little they have actually said about how they're going to keep their promises and how hard the task they have in front of them really is. Well, and like one of the things you could do, I know, Matt, you've spent more time looking at this, is you could lower the corporate tax rate, but get rid of these, get rid of a lot of loopholes. Say, like, right. we're going to lower this, but we're, you're not going to be able to get out of, like, the NASCAR loophole that, you know, gets you better tax breaks on your on your race cars or whatever other things exist. But it sounds like they have not been... Super. I know there is, but it's on the you have on the um, individual side the deductibility of state and local taxes. But is there anything in here with the lowering of the corporate tax rate about like closing any corporate loopholes? This, this corporate tax proposal it makes no sense, right? So Mitt Romney in 2010 came up with a proposal which was structurally similar to this. He was going to have a corporate tax rate cut and it was going to be paid for through unspecified loophole elimination. And what his team came up with. Romney, I mean, it's sad to say, came from this, like, weird moment in 2012 when people didn't just totally make stuff up in their policy proposals. So they came to the conclusion that 25% was, like, the most that they could promise they would cut it to. Because if you eliminated all the loopholes and deductions, that would pay for probably, like, a 27% corporate tax rate. So they gave themselves, like, a little fudge factor and got down to 25 
So 25, that didn't sound good enough, I guess, to Kevin Brady and Paul Ryan, who months ago, you may recall, we mentioned the destination-based cash flow tax. So they had this idea— A simpler time. They had this idea to replace the corporate income tax with this 20% sort of consumption tax, the destination-based cash flow tax. But they didn't want to say that they were replacing the corporate income tax with a kind of 20% national sales tax, because that sounded bad. So they called it still the corporate income tax, even though it was completely different and had nothing to do with the corporate income tax. So then this idea of a 20% corporate income tax rate like ended up in documents. But it was decided months ago to drop the proposal to implement the destination-based cash flow tax. So the 20% number just kind of migrated over. But the effective tax rate, right, the, the tax rate that corporations pay, including all the loopholes and all the deductions, is either 24 or 28%, depending on how you look at it. But it's definitely not 20%. So they're not specifying which loopholes they're going to get rid of. They're creating some new loopholes. And it just can't it it like it literally it can't be done like you you can't you would have to have negative loopholes which you which you can't have <laughs> or so, you can raise the deficit yeah but it, but you can't i mean you you literally uh, under the bird rule like you cannot have a gigantic permanent corporate I income have a question tax about this so the tax policy center says they're going to raise taxes on individuals to make this corporate rate cut work I was curious if, because this is all being governed in the world of BIRD, there's no suggestion that there's going to be an attempt to create a 60-member coalition in the Senate, that this will go through the same reconciliation process that um, the healthcare was tra- attempting to go through. You could have the the tax cuts not be permanent, right? Like, we've seen that story before, and it seems like something that at least some Republicans are interested in. One of the, My understanding of the BIRD rule is you can have short-term increases in the deficit. But once you get past that 10-year budget window, that's when you cannot be increasing the deficit. Now, one way to do that, one way to meet that rule is just create a bill that doesn't increase the deficit. Another is just to have a budget gimmick where they, it's not really a gimmick though, because it happens then in real life, but where you have your tax cuts just sunset magically in in 2027. Yes. Um, And they may well come to that. I, I don't understand this proposal. Like this proposal does not, meet its stated goals. It's not in a line with the budget resolution that they're working on. So I was on Face the Nation with Paul Ryan this weekend, and he said they are not going to do that. He said this is not going to raise a deficit. It was not I mean, going to expire. Well, won't raise it in the long term. Saying, but right. I'm just saying that they are currently not planning for that, right? right? They they are publicly making it harder for themselves to to have that be the outcome, right? Like, Paul Ryan does not have to go out and say, like, he'd be like, well, we'll see. You know, we'd like to get some Democratic support. But it's like, nope, like this is not going to expire. It's going to be permanent. It's going to go forward. One question I had is that obviously one of the ways they want to do this is by blowing up the deficit, uh, which you can only do by $1.5 trillion under Bird, obviously. But they're also saying it's just not going to blow up the deficit. Yes. Not, they're not saying we're going to use reconciliation to the full of it, fullest of its capabilities. They're saying we are not, it will not add to the deficit. And also like, Bob Corker is saying this cannot add to the deficit. I mean, the crucial votes are saying like this should not be a, a deficit increasing tax cut. What they do, however, leave uh, a space for is to dynamically score the tax cut to say, well, it'll increase growth and the growth will lead to revenues. And so, you know, even though maybe it looks like it is increasing the deficit, really, it's going to be so good for the economy, it won't. But my understanding is that 
that is scored by um, JCT and CBO, which does a little bit of dynamic scoring, but does not do the kind of like crazy dynamic scoring Republicans are always wishing someone would do. Like they keep trying to do this and putting new directors in charge of CBO and then the directors look at the evidence and then they don't do the, they they say, well, you know, the, there's only so much you can do. I mean, we can do a whole episode and maybe should on dynamic scoring, which I think yes. is worth talking about. But within the congressional process, they're just not going to get a huge dynamic number. Yeah, I mean, one of the many known unknowns about this is because he, here's one thing, which after having watched the healthcare thing, it's difficult to know exactly how much they are going to abuse the congressional process to get this done, right? So, like on healthcare, at the end of the day, it turned out they were willing to completely bypass the committee structure, have the House vote on bills the CBO hadn't scored. Then after the Senate was like, no, like, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're definitely going to have CBO scores. They worked things out so that the actual bills were amendments to the bill that had been CBO scored. So the Senate was, in fact, going to pass bills that the CBO hadn't scored. So who knows, right? I mean, if you get desperate enough, like, you know, Congress is Congress, right? Like, fundamentally, an empowered electoral majority in Congress can do what it wants. Uh, These rules matter, but they're self-imposed constraints. It seemed like, ultimately, to get the healthcare bill done, they were willing to break the Senate process in a really extreme way. But in doing that, they, like, broke John McCain's loyalty to the Republican Party, and the whole thing wound up collapsing. Now we're, like, back at square one, and I think we don't know. Right. You listen to what Paul Ryan is saying, you listen to what Bob Corker is saying. And the one thing I can say for sure is that, like, the thing that Paul Ryan is saying they are going to do, that is not going to happen. Right. They are not going to pass a permanent bird compliant tax cut that reduces taxes for the middle class, but also has this gigantic. It's like negative corporate income tax, eliminates the estate tax. Like, there's no way, right? Like, there is math. If you want to eliminate the estate tax and you want to cut the corporate tax rate and you want to eliminate the AMT and you want a big tax cut for sort of like law firms and other pass-through entities and you want it to be deficit neutral, you have to have a large middle-class tax increase. Right. Like there's no other way to do it. Um, Now, you can dynamically score yourself however you want if you ultimately want to. I note that the the Treasury Department purged a uh, Office of Tax Analysis paper that said that the incidence of the corporate income tax falls mostly on uh, owners of capital. Um, While they were doing that, they could have deleted the Office of Tax Analysis. What's important is that would mean that cutting the corporate tax rate is a tax cut for owners of, for rich people. Exactly. So, so they went through OTA and they found one paper that violated their talking points and they deleted it. Uh, There's a, there's a 2000. Wait, really? They just. Yes. Deleted yeah. it off yeah, the they, Treasury. Yeah, they website? just deleted it. So there's a 2006 paper about dynamic scoring, uh, which says that you can't make this work with dynamic scoring. They haven't deleted that one yet. I'm not sure if they know where it is. Uh, I, I know where it is. Can we <laughs> and, put it in show notes? And we'll, we should and, definitely sure. put this illicit and paper we'll, in and show we'll, notes. And we'll blog about it later. Um, <laughs> but it's like, it, it's Read a Read this while you still can. You should. Have you downloaded that paper? The deleted no. paper. They don't you want should, you should read. download I think, that paper. I think it's on CBPP. Anyway, it shall be preserved. <laughs> um, 
the point is, it's a, it's a mysterious document because nobody made them produce this framework at all, right? I mean, there are a lot of things that you have to do to comply with the legislative process. This is, like, not on that list, and it doesn't convey any information. I do also want to note that you have a very good piece on this this morning, which maybe will also be in show notes, but but about all the decisions they haven't made here. But something I do want to note is that a lot like the end of Graham, uh, of Obamacare with Graham Cassidy, the only like hard thing Republicans have decided to commit to doing is fucking over blue states. So it's like they have, they're keeping the mortgage interest deduction, which in the context of a tax plan like this is just crazy. Like the mortgage interest deduction is a bad deduction. It definitely should not be structured the way it's currently structured. It's just bad. Charitable. I'm not a huge fan of, but you can. I think there's a much better argument for it. But the only thing they really do here is take away the state and local tax deduction, which is good for states that have high tax burdens, which is to say it's a good tax deduction for California, for New York, for Massachusetts, for New Jersey, which is also to say it's a devastating tax plan for a Republican in any of those states, which is like the kind of Republican who might lose their reelection bid in 2002. 18. So they're also putting their their majority a bit more at risk. But they are going to have to do all of this fighting over uh, deduction closing. I almost dislike the term loopholes because these things aren't loopholes. They're like actual policies that got decided, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad. But loopholes makes them sound easy. Like, like you just like got a hole in your sweater and you got to close it. But no, like... The corporate tax yeah. loopholes are real loopholes. But they have really powerful defenders. <laughs> yes. Right? I mean, they just don't... They're not mistakes. That's what I'm They're trying to say. They're not some error here. in the tax code yeah. that someone discovered and took advantage like, like of. When you they say, were lobbied for. Right. Like when you say there's like a loophole, um, like like in a software program or something, like I, I take that to mean like, oh, like the code is not really well written and like some like a hacker can get, you know, that's not what this is. Like the code is well written. It was written by lobbyists. They knew what they were doing. Um, and it's going to be hard to get rid of. There are some loopholes, but like interest deductibility is not a loophole. No. Like that's like a big, tough deduction. And if you're going to get real money, you're going to have to begin going after things like that. So they haven't made any decisions. The only real one they have taken on in a serious way, like they, by the way, they haven't even said the carried interest deduction, which is like the one that helps hedge funders out. Like they say the the committee will look at that. The only thing they're actually willing to say, they're going to fuck over California, which in addition to not getting them all the way to where they need to go, but at the same time, making it harder for like, there are a bunch of Republican members of Congress from California. It also, I think, just speaks to this new thing that I don't remember being true in the ways Republicans were building policy before of just deciding that they're just going to defend um, pay-fors and approaches that just hurt blue states versus red states. Like It's a real like pure politics of tribal war that I think is its centrality to the end of healthcare and the beginning of tax reform is just, I think, a, a, a fact worth noting. So I think we've talked a lot about the flaws with this plan and the many obstacles it faces, but I still feel like I'm ready, relatively bullish on this compared to healthcare. I know we had like a nine-month period where they worked on healthcare, they couldn't get it done, but... I, I, even with all of these obstacles that exist, it still seems like something that is a slightly easier lift. You know, in tax reform, you don't have the people. Healthcare reform ended right after you had this hearing where people with wheelchairs were being literally dragged out, um, where people were telling a lot of stories about losing their health insurance, about these very like life and death situations. I don't think tax reform has quite the same emotional valence, which I think makes it a more difficult issue to organize against. And I think, you know, with the health reform, there was a lot of internal um, 
internal strife in the Republican Party. Do we actually want people to lose health insurance? I don't know the dynamics on tax quite as well as I do on health care. It seems to me, though, there's a little bit less of that on, on the tax side. I think one dynamic I'm curious to see how this plays out is we, we've generally seen a pretty ineffective Congress that has not been able to pass any sort of major legislation despite owning the White House and Congress. Go that, on. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm curious if that kind of lulls the other side into like a false sense of security. Like this is a party or if it, you know, maybe in like three months we'll tape the weeds and I'll be completely wrong. And it really just is a party that cannot get anything done. But it feels, I don't know, it feels to me like there's more more of an opening here with an with an issue that has like a lot less emotional valence to the debate. Yes, I 100% agree with that. I mean, look, in 2001, George W. Bush wrote a bill that lowered everybody's taxes a little bit and rich people's taxes a lot. And it increased the deficit a lot. And it was scheduled to expire after 10 years. And when 10 years were up, they got it extended for a couple more years. And then when those couple more years were up, they got it mostly made permanent. I would think that they would do that again. I don't see how Democrats could possibly stop them from doing that again. It doesn't seem politically viable to me to to try to stop them. Uh, Interest rates are low. I mean, people will say, oh, the deficit, but like the deficit is fine. That just, that isn't what they are proposing. So it's a little bit weird, right? Like, Legislation on the subject of health care is going to pass Congress, right? Whether in the form of a bipartisan stabilization, something with the chip, something will be done. But like the, something with the chip. But like the <laughs> Obamacare repeal. Yeah, tune in Tuesday. <laughs> that, that's why I think that the dissonance is like what they are proposing to do here, like I really don't think that this is going to happen. Like, they started with this border-adjusted tax thing, which was crazy and obviously not going to happen. Like, here's the thing. Ezra was talking about the state and local tax deduction, right? So they're saying, like, this screws over blue states. It screws over blue states, which it totally does. The states that this screws over, four out of the top five are blue. The fifth is Utah. Utah <laughs> is represented. It's not only not a blue state. Orrin Hatch is the fucking chairman of the Senate Finance <laughs> Committee. You cannot... It's fine to do something that screws over the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, but your reason for picking that can't be that it's like a dirty political pool that shivs your enemies. Like, that doesn't work at all. It's really stupid. The border tax was similarly, it was, it was baffling. Youth is of, what if we proposed a huge tax increase on large retail chains? So you'd be like, wow, wouldn't Walmart be mad? And they were like, no, let's just propose it. Then Walmart got mad. Then the senators from Arkansas, who are Republicans, were like, no, let's not do that. So they had to kill it. But they spent months talking about this for no reason. They're not going to do the salt thing, which means they're not going to be able to pay for any of this. And I don't know. I I really I agree with you, Sarah. Like, I think eventually they're going to write a tax cut bill. But I also that's what I thought in February. And I don't know why they don't like skip ahead to the part where they admit that this is pointless and impossible and just like do a deficit finance tax cut for rich people that throws some pennies at everyone else. And like they can have a signing ceremony like they'll be really happy. Yeah, that the same here. Like, I, I understand how I would pass a tax cut if I were the Republicans. What I don't understand is why they have set up a like literally impossible series of promises that they can't they can in any way fulfill. Um, I, I was very much where you were on this until the framework came out, and until they were like, it's going to be progressive uh, as as the current code. It's going to be deficit neutral. Like it's going to you know hit the bird rule. Like it's just none of that 
can happen. So at some point, they're going to have to 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 walk that down or walk that back. This was a really good issue for them to send through committees. Like the precise kind of wheeling and dealing you need to do on taxes, where you're worried about senators from this state versus that one or members of Congress who have like a, a district that has this kind of industry and not that kind of industry. Like House committees have like 10,000 people on every single one of them. Like House committees are huge. And it's a perfectly good place to work out these kinds of questions. Having the big six do this, uh, as they're calling it, that was really dumb. Like there was no reason for it. It didn't help them. And so now they've like set down these markers and they're going to take a lot of political damage as they try to like reach the markers. And so the question is just like, by the end of that process, have they taken on so much political water that they've killed the whole thing? Or are they going to be able to do like a final pivot to to the plan B? Like if I were Paul Ryan, I would have somebody in a back room somewhere writing the plan B bill, right? Just like the, the easy tax cut, like everybody will like it. By the way, you could have done that with Democrats too. If you put out a middle-class tax cut, you did repay, corporate repatriation for infrastructure and you did um, uh, some corporate tax reform stuff, you could have gotten Democrats on that. Like I was talking to a Democratic Senate staffer who was saying that exact thing the other day. They've just decided to do this in the hardest possible way from the outset and to set up a bunch of conditions that they're both not going to be able to reach. But while they're failing to reach them, they're going to inflict huge damage on the effort. So like the only the only question, uh, I think, is it possible that Republicans are so bad at legislating now that they will have made it impossible for them to pass a tax cut? Yeah, I want to clarify, Marks. I do not think this proposal passes, yeah. but I think something comes out of it. Because, you know, sure, there's political water from, like, giving up on some things you promised. But people like tax cuts. Like, even if your tax cut doesn't feel as big as the next kind, people like paying less taxes. And I don't know. I feel like we've seen before that has a lot of valiance, you know, that could over override, like, you know, other promises that are being broken in the process. I don't know. I think a tax cut is is still possible from this Congress. I, I, I you, that, you, yes, it should definitely, I just, yeah, just, I don't know why we're doing it this way. All right. Is it time for a white paper? Way. Yeah, let's, okay, take, let's, take, a break. let's take a break. Talk about Germany. The Art of Shaving is all about taking your shave-in and your grooming routine from, from good to great. Uh, they were founded in New York in 1996. They've been helping guys look their best for over 20 years, and they got a whole routine covered. You know, whether it's shaving, uh, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body fragrance, they got it all. Um, their products are formulated with high-quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. Uh, so the four elements of the perfect shave have been created to deliver smooth results every day. Uh, you prep with a pre-shave oil, you create a thick, foamy lather with shaving cream applied to the shave brush, shave, then you can replenish moisture with an aftershave balm, and you can finish it off with one of their five new fragrances. They've got sandalwood and cypress, oud suede, vetiver citron, green lavender, and coriander and cardamom. Each cologne's been carefully assembled for a distinctive scent. Uh, so the Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service as well, so you can save on your favorite products and never need to worry. So here's what you need to know about this. It's a bunch of cool products, and our listeners can get 15% off your first order and free shipping if you use the promo code WEEDS. Uh, so to get this order, you go online to theartofshaving.com, use promo code WEEDS, and you get 15% off your first order and free shipping, theartofshaving.com for this special offer. Or, you know, if you're interested in a consultation with a grooming expert, they got retail locations all over the country, uh, really great shops. You can, you can check their stuff out and, and, you know, try it out, talk to people about what you might like. It's The Art of Shaving, 15% off with promo code WEEDS. 
paper comes to us, The Employment and Output Effects of Short-Time Work in Germany by Russell Cooper, Moritz Meyer, and Imo Schott. And so this is looking at uh, Germany during the uh, Great Recession. Instead of having tons and tons of people lose their jobs and then give them unemployment insurance money, they set up this program uh, called uh, Kurzarbeit in German, or short-time work, uh, they're calling it in English, where basically the government would... Uh, it's a little hard to know how to describe it. Okay, so if your employer was allowed to sort of cut you to half time, right? So you'd only work 20 hours a week. And instead of laying off half the staff, you could put everyone on half time work. And then instead of giving unemployment insurance to the workers who'd been laid off, the government paid 60% of what you would have been paid had you been working those extra hours. So basically, the aggregate hours worked declined in Germany, just like it did in the United States. But instead of tons of people being thrown out of their jobs, they just sort of worked less and were paid off in, in a similar way. Uh, so the, the research here shows that this was highly successful at its goal of reducing unemployment. It also shows that the uh, American economists in the Obama administration, who spent that whole winter trashing this idea to me by saying it would uh, create a bigger GDP loss, uh, were correct. And it did create a bigger GDP loss. So, you know, Larry Summers can claim vindication if he wants. I, I would note on the flip side is that uh, the way we handle this in the United States appears to have completely destroyed the American political system yes. in a semi-permanent <laughs> basis. Um, yeah, that, that, that feels like the thing this paper does not quite get at as a trade-off. I think like, it's a little more German-focused like, than that. Yeah, Merkel is still, still in power. Whereas Germany, where, where I just was, uh, their society remains largely intact. So I'm not... <laughs> the thing that Americans identified as the problem with this policy, that, that did happen. It is true. Their GDP is lower than it otherwise might have been. Uh, on the other hand, I, I feel like Angela Merkel probably feels okay about it. Well, one of the things they talk a lot about here, I hadn't thought as much about recessions in, that, in this context, but you see a lot of like job shuffling in recessions. Like people have a job, they lose the job, and they eventually end up, you know, somewhere that might be a better fit, that it turns out, you know, they're actually a much better lawyer than they were, I don't know, whatever they were before doing this. Like, they go back to law school. It turns out they're a very productive lawyer. And in Germany, my understanding from this paper is you didn't see as much job switching, but for good reason, right? Like, if you still have your 20-hour-a-week job, the other 20 hours are being paid at 60%, you would probably stick around versus if you're someone who's laid off who might, like, go back to school, search for a new job. So you see people remaining in these jobs that are maybe less good fits, that they're less efficient at. I was also curious, I don't think this paper really gets into it, but it seems like a really inefficient way to run a workplace where everyone's like working part-time. You know, I think there's a lot there's a lot that gets lost in like having people share a job, for example. You know, getting caught up on like what the other person sharing your job was doing. Like, I think if it's more rote tasks, maybe it works well. But I don't know. I was just curious like how this works in a German office where you have people like constantly like passing in the night, like not really communicating with each other. It seems like a really inefficient way, um, especially in Germany to, to run an office. I want to offer a grimmer interpretation of the same of the same data because I think that this paper, the the way the way I interpreted it, there's some of what you talked about, right? Somebody's in a bad fit, they they get laid off, they retrain and get into a job that's a better fit for sure. There, but I think that what 
you're seeing in this paper is that there are a lot of people um, in workplaces who, yeah, like not not highly productive in that workplace, but it's not because they'd be super productive in some other workplace or at least not in another workplace that they're going to find. It's that they're just not as productive. I mean, like you assume that workers are like some people are the most productive workers, some people are the least productive workers. And what Kurzarbeit did is you had to cut everybody's hours. Where in America, what employers did, or a lot of them, was they laid off their least productive workers. A lot of those workers, some of those workers got new jobs. Some of those jobs might have been a better fit. Some of them might have been a worse fit. But some of those workers also did became long-term unemployed. Some of them dropped out of the labor market. You know, some of them just had a long spell of unemployment before coming back to a job that they were equally qualified at. But what was left in the workplace were the higher performers who were also terrified of being fired because, <laughs> like, all their friends had just been fired. So now they're working really hard. In Germany, you take the workplace and, like, the higher performers work less, the lower performers work less, everybody just works less. As you say, the thing becomes harder to manage because, like, you know, your best people are not there as much. It's just like the whole thing slows down and you just develop a less efficient economy. But the upside of developing that less efficient economy is, like, some people are spared from really, really, really terrible, like, pain and like long-term, possibly permanent unemployment and, and like wage loss. And then as things come back, you can kind of like ramp things back up. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that recessions, firing people is really hard. Um, it really like no matter what company, I, I shouldn't say, I'm sure there are companies that are sociopathic out there, but <laughs> firing people is really tough. Like even, it, even in the circumstances where it's very merited, it's emotionally incredibly wrenching. I mean, it, it's just, it's terrible. And you know, workplaces often have folks who are like low performers, but nobody wants to fire them. They're well liked. It's George. Everybody likes George. Like he always comes to the company softball game. Like, yeah, he's like not great. And like his employment, his, you know, performance marks are fair, but he's not a problem. He doesn't show up drunk. He doesn't like fuck up big projects. He just like, if you were hiring somebody, like you wish you had hired somebody who's not George, but like now George is here. Like George has kids. You don't want to fire George. And in recessions, George gets fired. And like when they hire again, they hire somebody better than George. <laughs> and like that makes the whole thing more productive. And in Germany, George stays on. And like that maybe makes the thing less productive, but also like George's life a lot better. And then Donald Trump doesn't get elected. And I, so I don't know. It's like hard to say. <laughs> I, I also want to know, I, I thought that this paper did not account for, for German labor market institutions correctly, right? Yeah, me too. So Germany has a much, much <laughs> stronger uh, labor unions than, than the United States does, including at uh, shops with over 2,000 employees, half of the board members are elected by the workers. Uh, every work site has a, a work council uh, that's like co-run by, by managers and workers. So the stuff Ezra is talking about, right, the, the efficiency of the American system is that if the boss decides, hey, we got to let go of half of the salesmen at this store, you just fire whoever you want, right? It's, it's 100% up to the boss. And so in a recession, when word comes down from on high and it's like you, 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 and you middle managers have to each identify half of your employees and you have to fire them, they do their best to identify the least productive employees. They get rid of them. Nobody has any protections. Um, in Germany, you can't do that, right? The kind of mass layoffs that were uh, aimed at productivity enhancement that are typical in the American private sector, you couldn't do 
in in German plants at all because there's a much stronger union voice. And it's, of course, the same, right, at a heavily unionized American workplace. If you want to do staff reductions at a place with a strong union, you either need to do uh, last-in, first-out layoffs, you need to do some kind of buyout structure, right? So whatever the efficiency loss exists in the German system is baked into the cake of them having stronger labor unions. Um, so the short time work in that context, it seems to me, is just clearly a winner, right? So uh, America's flexible labor markets mean that when there is a recession, companies have the flexibility to fire their least productive workers. And the upside of that is that that's an efficient way to run a labor market. In Germany's strong union model, you can't do that in a recession. And so what short work does is it lets companies and workers minimize the amount of layoffs. Because if they had layoffs, they wouldn't be able to do them in the quote-unquote efficient way anyway. Um, but the, the main point I just still think you look at this and like you just you have to say right that in a it may be different if you're looking at a very poor country that is like trying to get up the economic development ladder but in wealthy countries United States Germany Canada Spain wherever you want them the cost of the recession in like dollars and cents terms is just so small compared to the like psychological and social welfare cost of mass unemployment Right. And the Germans, like, they, they really avoided that. Right. They had, they show a chart in here. They had by far the biggest GDP loss of any developed country and by far the smallest unemployment rise. And it just seems to me that you're like, you're counting wrong if you're saying Germany had a more severe recession. And you see it everywhere, right? You see it in the fact that Merkel has been in power since like the dawn of time. Uh, you see it in the fact that, you know, they had a, a you can read, listen to the, the worldly episode about um, uh, the German election. It's really good, by the way. Yeah, they had a significant increase in people voting for a far right political party. At the same time, they had a million Syrian refugees. In the United States, we're talking about like 10,000 right? A country four times the size, a million. And that's what it sort of took to like shake the stability of Germany's social consensus, in part because employers now uh, would really like to have more people come work at their jobs, particularly for lesser skilled type positions, because they haven't had this, this kind of mass unemployment, right? I mean, the third thing between between the sort of rosy mismatch scenario that Sarah was talking about and the kind of ugly, like, you know, we, we lay off the, the lazy guy, it's just the kind of arbitrary sort of firm cycling, right? Before the recession in the United States, a lot of people worked at borders. Um, now nobody works at borders, right? Because that just, like, went out of business. And some of the people who used to work at borders, after a certain amount of time, you know, they got a job someplace else, right? And maybe they work at a new uh, lunch in a bowl kind of place, right? So you're just trading one kind of arbitrary retail shift work for another kind of arbitrary retail shift work that is better suited to, like, our present day times and inclinations. And that's the magic of disruption through which the economy goes forward. And if you, if that just happened to like a thousand people, you'd say, okay, fair enough. We're like, we're reallocating resources. But when it happens to a million people and it just goes on for years, that's like, it's awful. And it takes such an incredible toll on people. And in America, 
policymakers just did not think the recession could get that bad, right? The view was like, okay, a lot of people are going to lose their job, but we're going to bounce back. And it's going to be more efficient to maintain the flexibility of the American labor market. And we just like, we didn't bounce back. And the fact that we can look back seven years later and be like, okay, it wasn't permanent. It was only four years. Like, that's that's not so great. Not so great. What is great are the other Vox Media podcasts. Yes. I mentioned Worldly. Their episode on Germany's recent election, their most recent episode, was really great. I, I just listened to it over the weekend, and I I learned a ton. <laughs> I felt bad how little, how little I knew, but it's really, really good. Um, I have also on, on my podcast, I think we listeners will be interested, I interviewed E.J. Dion, Norm Ornstein, and Thomas Mann, uh, congressional scholars, Washington Post, columnists, they have a new book on Trump. <laughs> Um, and so I talked to the three of them about basically like the structural situation that, that created Trump and also particularly the way the Republican Party created Trump. Ornstein and Mann, particularly for a while, have been banging the drum that the Republican Party has become a, a sort of pathologically dysfunctional institution. And so they are pretty interesting on how Trump represents continuity, not a break from that. Uh, so I think Weeds listeners will like that episode. I think they would also like leaving us a comment or, or ratings on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, that's true. They, w- they would like that. Comments, ratings, it's all good. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, thanks to Peter Leonard for, for producing. And uh, we'll see you in a few days. Thanks, as always, for listening to The Weeds. Uh, but I also want to take this moment to insert a, a really proud plug for our parent company, Vox Media. Uh, Vox Media is the fastest-growing modern media company known for its standout technology and high-fidelity advertising. Their platform is what supports our growth here at Vox.com, and it's what allows us to go deeper into the topics that you, our listeners, care about most. Uh, you know, for us, that's that's really public policy, but for listeners who haven't already, you should check out Vox Media's other editorial brands, whether it's SB Nation, which tells the story behind the scoreboard, The Verge, which helps you discover what to buy, what to obsess about, and what to disrupt next, or Curbed, all about real estate, home design, all that great stuff. Uh, what unites all these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality, because we believe in the power of going deeper, and we believe in the best of our audiences. So if you aren't going deep, where are you going? Check out Vox Media.